I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 16, Jesse's Secret Language. And today is also a very exciting day because we have another great guest slash friend of the podcast slash friend of me, Jeff Augustine. Yay! So Jeff is a Miami-born playwright who's written many plays, including, particularly relevant for our purposes, a play entitled The New Englanders, which premiered last year at the Manhattan Theatre Club. Jeff has won all kinds of fancy awards and is currently under commission from Manhattan Theatre Club and La Jolla Playhouse. And he's also written for the TV shows Claws, The Morning Show, and The Good Lord Bird. Welcome, Jeff. We're so happy you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for my first uh, Babysitter's Club experience. (laughs) I wish the listeners could see your look. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like the quizzical emoji with a beard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I was recalling to Esmenian your play and how we share mutual familial friendships (laughs) and how your play interrogated questions around white privilege in New England and that there were some funny kind of reactions to it. And they were like, oh, we got to get Jeff to come talk BSC with us. <laughs> um, so I'm so happy you were able to join us today and very excited to hear your thoughts on your very first Babysitter's Club reading adventure. <laughs> I really felt like I was Jesse while I was reading it. So it felt, <laughs> it felt <good>. Perfect. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, let's get into our one sentence summaries. Mine is, Jesse learns sign language, lands a lead role in Capellia, and arranges the ballet to be narrated in sign language while also dealing with being the only Black family in Stony Brook. I think there's going to be a theme to our ones and summaries today. <laughs> uh, mine is, newest BSC member and transplant to Stony Brook helps everyone around her feel included while Stony Brook at large remains lukewarm about their newest Black residents. <laughs> Jeff, do you have a one-sentence one summary for us? Uh, a black girl brings joy to Stony Brook through dance and sign language. Mm. Oh, very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Yeah, mine was Jesse's first book highlights how kind, responsible, mature, and perfect she is as she plans a huge surprise for a bunch of deaf children. Yeah. Yeah. We really yeah. got it. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Annie Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. And I'm Jeff Augustine, also a writer. And like Jesse, my family is black. <laughs> Fantastic. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, please write and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you want, you can email us at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. All right, Jeff, we're going to kick it off with you. We've already teased that this was your first Babysitter's Club book, but what about the Babysitter's Club in general and the zeitgeist of your history? Do you remember it? When do you remember first learning about it? What year were you born? These kinds of things. (laughs) So I was born in 86. I remember a lot of the girls in my school reading them. And I should say I grew up in Miami. I was place gifted. And similarly, again, like Jesse. They had one black guy and one black girl and gifted. Oh <laughs> but so all these all these white girls used to read the babysitters club books. And so and I also remember Alex Mack. Did they have a movie? And like that Alex was a Nickelodeon Mack. show. <laughs> oh yeah. But then Alex Mack was in the Babysitters Club. Babysitters Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Exactly That's right. All. Yeah. She played Dawn. Yes. <laughs> I watched the movie, I think. So that was actually my only experience with it. The Babysitter's Club. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, so as a first-time Babysitter's Club reader, but also as a writer and an artist, uh, what were your takes on it? What was your first impressions? Okay, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of teary-eyed at certain moments because <laughs> I was like, this is so sweet. Aww. And then I really started thinking about like 
how she kept being like, I'm black and no one loves me because I'm black. And then she was very, there were some magical elements to Jessie. Um, she felt like, like you were saying earlier, like mature and perfect and like had no issues. And was like, mm-hmm. it was like, and I've, I've experienced being in writer's rooms where like, they'll have a black character and suddenly the character is just like super perfect because they're afraid to making them flawed. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of felt like that's what Jesse was. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like, it's odd that the two, out, I don't know, the deaf and the blackness and the, de- like it just felt like let's put all the outsiderness in the black girls because book, because she can deal with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, toward the end of the podcast, try to figure out, are you just Jesse because you're also black or are you per- perhaps some other babysitter for some other uh, other reasons other than r- racially coded ones? But before we get into the meat of the book, do you guys want to ask Jeff any questions related to what babysitter he might be? <laughs> oh, I was I just had a question related to what the, the thoughts you just had about the book, because I do mm-hmm. think that um, this is something that comes up for us a lot on the podcast is, you know, even while we're trying to sort of interrogate what what are some of these larger messages we're getting and it, are there some concerning things we it, at least one of us I think cries like every book um, and there are like various teary passages so a conversation we have a lot on this podcast is like what were the parts that got you so I'm sort of curious in the you know what when when you let yourself sort of be in it without interrogating it what were the parts that 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 sort of touched you in that way one of the big parts is actually when uh, Jesse was talking to is it now I'm forgetting all the characters' names. Haley, is that? <laughs> um, and she's kind of talking about like wishing her brother wasn't born and all that. And like it was just that I found that so moving because I'm actually I come from um, I'm the youngest of seven, so I heavily relate to. Ma- I don't know anyone's name. Mallory, Marianne. Yeah, Mallory. <laughs> uh, Mallory. Mallory. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I've, I've had that moment. I also just felt like it was like an honest, it was also one of the few times I felt like she was flawed. Um, mm-hmm. And she's kind of revealing something about herself. So it just felt like a, I, I was very teary-eyed about that. Mm-hmm. And I, it also was moving when, um, when I, I don't know, I, I always find, I, YA and like this kind of genre, I always find when like all, everyone comes together and like supports people. It just always mm-hmm. gets me. And so like everyone at opening and like, yeah, it was just like a lovely sort of moment. Yeah. And I was very proud of Jesse. Yeah. Look, Esme's crying. You're like, you're really rooting for her. Uh, yeah. Esme cries in every podcast. podcast. <laughs> I do not. You're crying right now. I can see you. Yeah. Jeff and I often um, consult about All Matters YA with one another, which is another reason I thought it would be fun to have him talk Jesse's secret language with us. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> We're often having a YA sidebar and from a general adult conversation. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, well, Em, did you have some initial thoughts? Because you know Jeff better than Anne and I do. We've we've just met him. Do you have some thoughts about what characteristics of the other members of the BSC he might have? I mean, I think Anne raised a really good set of um, potential questions earlier, Jeff. What's your favorite color, for example? This is really important. <laughs> Did you ever wear a Swatch watch? That's very important. <laughs> Do you like junk food? These are these are crucial elements of one's personality. <laughs> um, my favorite color is blue, blue. Um, which I actually don't know if that's true anymore, but I'm, I remember saying that when I was in kindergarten and I've never changed it. Um, okay, that's uh, a very Esme thing, I think, to decide something was your favorite at eight and oh, then yeah. have it be your favorite forever. Esme's, Esme's personality formed, I think, when she was eight. Is that what it is? <laughs> okay, I thought we oh, were yeah, talking sorry. about Jeff. Oh, sorry, Jeff, yes. Go on. I'm sorry everyone interrupted you so rudely. <laughs> go ahead, sir. Um... I used to love junk food, like Debbie Snacks, um, but I don't any longer. Um, wait, wait, wait. Do you actually not like it anymore, or have you just become an adult and you know that you shouldn't eat it as much? don't like it anymore. I went home, and my sister and I were trying to be, like, nostalgic, and we, like, got in our pajamas at, like, 11 p.m., and then went to the grocery store to buy junk food. And then I bought tons of Debbie snacks and then like took a bite and, spit oh. and then just spat it out. <laughs> it's like, it like, how did I eat this? This is not, and nothing in here is natural. Um, <laughs> and 
Um, what's the other question? A watch? What's this watch? <laughs> okay, so the answer to that is no. Right, and what other questions should we ask? Well, on the topic of little Debbie snacks, what were your favorite ones? Oh, I loved zebra cake. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I loved a honey bun. Oh. I mean, you can't go wrong with a honey bun. Um, oh, and the oat milk cookie cream mm-hmm. thing. The sandwich. Oh. Yeah. 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 There's, um, oh yeah, so Claudia, the Asian one, which is me. Um, she really loves junk food and she hides, she hides junk food in her room. So a lot of her things are like ring dings and ding dongs and Twinkies and so forth. So it's interesting that you had a thing for little Debbie snacks. As our resident pop culture expert and takes us down a lot of candy rabbit holes yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that candy is part of pop culture, but it is. <laughs> Uh, any any other sort of initial impressions or things that stood out to you in the book Jeff business oriented it was it felt like very they felt very adult about it like a schedule there was like money due like they were like it was like a union which I really appreciated you know I'm pro-union so like that was great yeah there's a, a book earlier that we've done an episode on where there's a sort of rival agency that runs itself like a horrible corporate structure where the top is just, you know, totally extracting surplus value from the workers and the BSC is sort of this alternate, like, um, we've been throwing around the idea that Anna and Martin might be entertaining a more sort of compassionate capitalism thing, but I'm, I am of course a skeptic about the promise of that, but (laughs) certainly more compassionate than the babysitter's agency. Yeah. It's definitely the lesser of two evils. Uh, what else do we need to know about Jeff in order to t- determine his babysitter and get to know a man? Well, I don't think he's gotten his period either. That's true. No. Um, <laughs> my fashion sense, how would you describe your style? Mm. Oh, I have a great style. Like, I wake up, it takes me about an hour to get ready. It's every different textures, different silhouettes, different. Mm. Oh, it takes forever to get ready. No, yeah. All about style, which I did also appreciate in the book so much. So many chunky sweaters. Yeah. Love it. Except Christy, yeah. who always wears a turtleneck. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely some Stacy in there. Definitely. I think so. Yeah, you didn't really meet Stacy in this book, Jeff, but you she's a very she's a very savvy one from New York who um also has grown up a bit fast because she has diabetes. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> It's a, we'll have to have you back for a Stacy book sometime. Please do. <laughs> you can read all about her favorite New York boutiques in the 80s. Yeah, I don't know. We, we might have to wait throughout the conversation and see who he is at the end once we get I think more so. of his takes on everything else. Yeah. All right. Should we jump into psych stuff? What was there as? Yeah, I, I, I really liked some of the things that that Jeff pointed out actually. So the scene with Jesse and Haley is probably my favorite scene in the book as well. And I think, you know, we're seeing this undercurrent of, um, you know, Anna Martin really carries the flag for inclusion across all of the books. And I'm sure Emily will talk about kind of the, some of the dark underbelly of this in terms of liberalism and um, some dreams unfulfilled, but I think Anne is also- Whatever do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound like Anne at all. But I think Anna Martin's also approaching it specifically around children and the idea of uh, classroom inclusion and, um, you know, uh, appreciating differences and making sure that kids are um, allowed to have an education that works for them and that fits for them. Um, And so this idea of setting up the contrast between Matt Braddock, who's Jesse's new sitting charge and who's a seven-year-old boy who's deaf, and his parents and his older sister all are pretty fluent in sign language and talk to him. And he goes to a deaf school. There's this big sort of, not controversy, but there's this big discussion um, among families of and people who are deaf about deaf culture versus hearing culture. And, you know, should people go to special schools that are designed to promote the use of American sign language and um, a more visual culture versus should deaf children sort of 
be forced to live among the hearing as much as possible and like learn to rip, lip read if they have any little amount of hearing should they have hearing aids and all of that kind of stuff and some people sort of eschew all of that and say no deaf cultures its own legitimate thing and it should be respected and people should be allowed to be in it and other people say that's unrealistic and you should be able to live in the world um and so that's she sort of teases that at a age appropriate level i think but also sets up this contrast to katie bath one of the dancers at jesse's school who jesse later finds out has a deaf younger sister katie bath and her parents don't know any signs at all um, which I found sort of unbelievable that she comes home for the weekend and they don't know the sign for bathroom, which was one of the examples. How does she like get food? How did she get fed? Like it felt very like child neglect and abuse. Yeah. I was yeah. slightly worried for her. Yeah. I mean, I get it if they are not as on top of it as the Braddocks, but it seems like they would have to know some signs or they just hold up literal signs for her, like things written and with pictures. I don't know. But this idea that there's like a right and a wrong way to care for children that have special needs, I think is something that we'll see coming up more. But she definitely holds up the Braddocks as like the good family of a deaf child. Um, and, you know, Katie Beth's family as not good. And Jessie, again, in some of her magical perfection, you know, prompts Katie Beth to take a class in sign language and like become closer to her sister and view her differently rather than just kind of send her away to this what sounds more like an institution as opposed to Matt who goes to a school for the deaf in Stanford and lives at home with his family um so I think that that just that whole treatment of that is a is a theme that we see and is something that really wasn't in a lot of books um and as she said in her note in your later edition Emily she wanted to have deaf kids who were fans of the series have someone in the series that represented them. And so I thought that Matt was a nice example of that. But this conversation about being the, you know, quote unquote, you know, averagely functioning sibling of a kid with a disability of some kind, I thought was really, as Jeff said, really honest and and well rendered um, that Haley would you know, resent Matt from time to time and be upset that, you know, she has to defend him, but she doesn't want to because she just wants to be normal and she just wants to be able to make friends and not have to sign all the time. And he makes weird noises because he's profoundly deaf. And he can't help it. And, you know, her sort of guilt and shame kind of at war with each other while she really loves him, but she's also struggling with like being nine and moving to a new place and having to fit in. And all of that is hard, even if you don't have a deaf sibling. And so I thought that um, Jesse dealt with it really adeptly. And I thought that that whole scene was just, uh, as Jeff pointed out, like really lovely. Um, and Jesse's ability to validate Haley and listen to her and kind of normalize that it's okay. Like having those feelings doesn't mean that she's a bad sister or a bad person and that, you know, it's normal to feel conflicted about these complicated things. Um, and, I, and there's a lot of literature on how hard it is to be the neurotypically developing sibling of somebody with autism or somebody who is deaf or somebody who has a long-term medical problem. Um, and so I thought that that was also a nice portrayal for other kids reading the book. You know, kids, mm -hmm. I think that kids who had a sibling that has any kind of special needs could relate to Haley. And um, it was very touching to see that written on the page so they could read that and be like, oh, you know, even if they're not talking about it with anybody in their life, they could read that and see like, okay, well, Haley thought that and Haley's okay, I'm okay, which is pretty powerful. So that was the thing that stood out to me the most in terms of kind of just capturing a bit of developmental psychology in a really concise and, you know, honest way. Mm -hmm. The other small thing, just because you all know that the treatment I do has a lot of mindfulness in it. Um, Jesse had a really great description of a particular kind of mindfulness called participate mindfulness when she's talking about dancing. Um, it was in chapter 14 and she says, hold on, sorry, I should have marked the page. I just know the chapter. So rude. She's dancing. <laughs> she's dancing opening night in Coppelia. And she says, uh, you might think I was aware of the fact that my friends and family and Matt and his classmates were in the audience watching me, but I wasn't. When I'm on stage, I am the dance. 
with italics. I'm the steps and turns and leaps. I'm Swanilda telling my story, nothing less. Um, and that idea of kind of throwing yourself in completely to something and being in that state of flow and just participating with that being the only thing you're doing, turns out is really good for our brains. It's hard to do as humans, not what we're meant to do evolutionarily, but it's a good thing to practice. And so if you can find whatever that thing is for you that lets you to do that, like whether it's being Swanilda or <laughs> gardening or drinking a cup of tea, you know, you could do lots of different things in that way, but being able to throw herself in completely was a, it was a nice little, just aside of sort of the, the benefits of, of doing that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Good advice. I'm thinking to myself, how can I, how can I participate in something and feel better? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of everything I participated in, I participated in begrudgingly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't even like writing. <laughs> I, in my experience, most writers seem to like hate writing, but can't stop, can't stop themselves. Yeah, well, you have to torture yourself to something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Any questions on that stuff? On the no. Well, I I think that we're we're obviously moving toward here, but we have to come back to this question of like the magicalness of Jesse and unpack it. Cause there's also like that he, that I mean, you just mentioned three different things that were linked to kind of developmental moments that linked to practices of mindfulness and that are portrayals or representations of different kinds of inclusive things for education. And like Jesse's at the center of all of those Mm -hmm. of like that, which is like a lot for one 11 year old character to sort of bear, I guess, or yeah. Carry. So that's, that's a question that, that I had Emily. And I I had a couple of questions for you in terms of the, we talked a lot in hello Mallory about kind of racial identity development and, and thinking about the different ways that differences are addressed in the universe of Stony Brook. But do you want to start there? Do you want to start with, I mean, my question is, is Jesse too perfect? Like, does Jesse do too much? Is she, is it, is it too much? And, and Jeff just had some big eyebrows. So I think maybe we start with him. <laughs> yeah, she's way, and I agree. Like she somehow is holding, she's like moose to this town. She has to deal with the fact that she's the only black girl. Only, granted, I've not read the other books, so I don't know if they. Um, this is her first introduction or her first book. This is her first book. This is the first book told from her perspective, but she is introduced two books prior. So, in the first book where she's introduced, there's some discussion of. Um, how few black families there are in Stony Brook in general. She's the only black kid in sixth grade, but there are like two black kids in eighth grade or something. So there's like three black kids in the whole school, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. She's just like super magical because she's like dealing with the fact that she's the only black kid and like she kind of throws these lines of like, no one likes me because I'm black, but then kind of just moves ahead. Is somehow supposed to like, also it's kind of odd that like we're dealing with like, not odd, but it's just like, it's, that where she has somehow is an outsider. She meets this other family that's an outsider, like the deaf kid. And somehow she's supposed to bring them together in this like super, I'm assuming privileged white community. And she kind of is also supposed to be this perfect ballerina who's somehow the lead at 11 years old um, <laughs> of this entire thing and kind of takes care of her. Like she's just, I wish I was that perfect now. Um, and we're then, like remotely competent at all of those things now yeah. <laughs> yeah and I will say the thing like it just fit part of the thing I, I wish it kind of invested kind of investigated a little more is just that pressure of like being having to be perfect because I was like there is a version of this story maybe where we are dealing with a black girl who has to work harder than everyone else and feels like she has to be perfect in order to be accepted. Um, and maybe they do go down that journey at some point in the collection of mm-hmm. the books, the series. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's exactly right. That like it, we, the book doesn't treat why jet, why Jesse's at the center of all these things at all. Right. It's, it's like just sort of, I mean, for one thing, it's her her telling the story, but she's not only like bringing this these two excluded sort of families together with one another, but she's also 
including them into the broader community of which she's still like barely uh, accepted. And so it's like this wild, like bringing together and sort of unity thing. And she, she's, she's fixes like the Braddock kids lives, both of them. (laughs) She fixes her um, dance compatriots life, her little sister's life. Um, She fixes like, I don't know, maybe Nikki Pike's life, right? So one of the Pike kids who's a boy, Jeff, in past books, he's the only boy that's not one of the triplets and he like hates girls and so he has no one to play with. And now he's got, you know, now he's got Buddy Barrett and Matt Braddock to play baseball with. Like, and like all of, within the span of 150 pages, Jesse has like tied a really nice bow on a bunch of people's problems. She also told Christy that her mom was not too old to have a child. (laughs) <laughs> so she fixed that problem too yeah yeah it's yeah ancient liz thomas who's yeah jesse jesse says yeah. i know um she could still get pregnant at 37 <laughs> yeah like why does 11 year old jesse know that but exactly. christy does not <laughs> well she has a baby brother she has a one-year-old brother that's true so her, you, you might assume that her mom might be yeah. about 37. Yeah. But I, I think what's interesting is that there's no examination of to what extent, like, she's in that position because other people have, like, whether incidentally or not, put her there. Right? Well, that was my question for you, both of you, because the thing that I really like about this book is that it's basically all on Jesse's initiative. Right. So this isn't a – we're not getting the the take that the Ramses are super pressury, like – um, you know, let's be the the perfect black family in this environment. Like you are going to study ballet because that's an acceptable thing in this, you know, high, like high income community. Like they're like, if you want to, if it's important to you, this seems like the place for you. They trust your talent. You know, they seem very supportive and cool. She's excited about learning languages. She's excited about getting to know this kid. And then she's excited about, you know, she sees this opportunity when she realizes how important dance is to her that Matt's never been in a theater. And then she gets this idea. So like, yes, you can argue that there's like more subtle pressures happening, but what I liked about the story is that it does sort of prize her initiative and that it's about things that are, that are her idea. So I sort of don't, I don't want to take that away from her because she's 11. Do you know what I mean? And say that she's been like put upon in this way um, as like a, go-getter kid who had big schemes um i think that there's there's something to be said for that piece of it too that these are challenges she takes on on purpose jeff do you have any thoughts on that come back to me i'm (laughs) so i had a couple thoughts i think so on the one hand one of the things that i was thinking about about the pressure from others to perform in this way is the self like the continued thing that Jeff keeps mentioning where Jesse keeps coming back in her internal monologue to the fact that because she's black people, right. She's the, that lead is never black. So that's like constantly in the back of her mind that this like expectation that um, some of the things that she's doing in blackness kind of don't live together normally. And then the I other thing, perfect Swanilda because Swanilda wasn't black. Yeah. And then the other thing is the, the emotional labor bit of it. I mean, we've talked about this a lot with Don, but I think what's going on with Jesse is perhaps even is like more sinister, right? It's like all the evidence about like it, it just in the one example of academia, which is the one I know the most that like the people who are make up the smallest percentage of faculty do like a hundred percent of what we think of as the emotional labor for the students, right? That like women of color faculty members are on all the committees. They do all the all the work for interfacing with students, all the informal and formal, you know, like guidance counseling and like all this kind of stuff that people turn to women of color at, at like whether intentionally or not and likely not. Right. And just expect that they're going to do the care work for them. Right. That they're going to mm-hmm. like be able to solve their emotional problems. And I think that, right. Like we're not seeing that explored here. We're just seeing it taken for granted. Like, and even Jesse kind of takes it for granted a bit, right? She's like, really th- that she's constantly talking about the things that she's good at, but it's always coupled with the, those hesitations and that, like, you know, that reflection on like, I don't want to say like the limits of blackness, but the, like the limits of like what people expect black to mean and those like live next to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. But like, 
but we're not exploring them here. They're just assumed, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think there's something about the only time she references her blackness is also in relation to, yeah, that like not being able to do something or that other people were making fun of her. And it, there was never the kind of like nuanced sort of a more deep self, like, I how to articulate this, but there's, there was a scene and it, it, it may also just feel like the parents don't seem, but there's something about it that feels like, other than the fact that she references that she's black, nothing about the story inherently <laughs> tells me that she's having a different kind of experience than these other, the other ladies she works with, mm-hmm. uh, which both I like the story's not about like, oh, whoa, this black girl. But mm-hmm. I do feel like she would not just be like, people are making fun of me, but like, that like are they sniping at me because I'm black like there would be there would be more layers to it mm-hmm. um and just feeling the layers I think yeah I just feel like some of the layers of that is what I miss that actually reminds me too because of your in your one sentence summary your what your your sentence was like black girl brings joy basically to L- Lily White Connecticut town but what we what we talk about as like black girl joy now is not like what Jesse's doing in Stony Brook, right? It's like maybe that's kind of that, that gap that you're that you're seeing there. Yeah. How would you write Jesse now? Oh, how would I write Jesse now? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's or like in the context of this story. Uh, <laughs> there's this thing with uh, what's that girl's name? Katie Beth. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I think she would. I've always just, uh, there's a couple of things that run my mind. One of those kept thinking about Missy Copeland. Um, we, we had a text I, chain going about her. Yeah. <laughs> her new book is about this ballet. It's about her being the role that Jesse plays, Swanilda, in Coppelia. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I figured she'd had some sort of, it's a good question. How would I write this? I think a lot of it would be like her being like, I'm not here to take care of you white people. God bless y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I get the deaf person because we're both outsiders. I, I did think there'd be like more, <laughs> there'd be more conflict. I think she, I'd wonder if she would kind of call things out a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, I do also wonder, I mean, also that considering like, I also think that I imagine there'd be some of the babysitters would probably be more woke. Um, right. But I do think some of the things of like, well, I guess there is a future book with someone. Um, now I'm doing other storylines. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would make her more self-aware. I think there there is conversations you have with your, I mean, I remember growing up with my mom telling me not wearing flip-flops outside the house. Like, I just like there's more conversations with the parents because I think I would feel odd with my daughter if, if I had a black daughter going to all these random white people's houses, um, babysitting their kids. Um, I think her being aware of her emotion, like when you were talking about Emily, about like that kind of emotional, like black woman burden of taking care of everyone else, but themselves mm-hmm. sort of things. Um, but yeah, I think just making her more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like in the moment when she feels like shame around having won the lead, instead of having her feel shame because the lead would not normally be black, she could be like, Hey, you know, fuck you for being judgy of me, I can dance this part. Like, this part is Black. Like, I can be Black and be this part. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting, right? So, Jeff, you may or may not know this, but um, so the new, the Netflix show that just came out, um, Marianne is Black in the Netflix reboot, and Dawn is Latina. Um, And so they did that. And then, you know, Claudia is still Japanese, Jesse's still Black, and, um, you know, Stacey Christie and Mallory remain. No, they made Claudia Um, and Jesse white, actually. (laughs) 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 Wouldn't that be hilarious if they just picked it all up? Anyway, um, (laughs) too much Japanese. (laughs) Um, Claudia Campbell. No. so, but there was some pushback, like, and, uh, you know, we were super excited, like, yeah, the person from California should be Lat- Latina, like, great, you know, um, and, um, but I think you see the same thing. They have these amazing young actresses who play them, um, and we, you know, we follow them on Instagram, and they, you know, very much 
say, you know, they're not apologizing, you know, Malia Baker, who plays Marianne, is not apologizing for being Marianne or thinking she can't be Marianne because she's black. She's like, this is important. And I've gotten hundreds of letters from black girls saying, thank you for portraying Marianne. And this is really helpful to us. And so I do think there that additional layer of, you know, pushing for representation instead of just kind of lamenting the lack of it or, or feeling a little apologetic for taking up that space makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense for now. I do, I do have a question though, in terms of, cause so the book in which Jesse's introduced hello Mallory, which is two books before this, um, when she first moves to Stony Brook, there's actually a lot about race in that book more than we had all remembered. Um, and she experiences both like overt racism and microaggressions and she and Mallory talk about it a lot. And Jesse shares the difficulties in those initial things. So I, I wonder, you know, given that there's multiple books in the series, would there be a danger also? Does Jesse's book always have to be about her blackness? I guess. Like we don't want it to to ignore it, but I'm wondering if this book has a little bit less of that because there was so much of it when she was introduced and we don't want that to be her main character trait. And like, it seems like finding that balance is really challenging. But except that this whole book is about exclusion and like social inclusion. And so like it, for it to only nominally be about race, I think is a little disingenuous. That makes sense. Whereas if it's the book about her competing in the synchronized swimming competition, then it doesn't have to be as much about her blackness. Maybe. Although I don't know about synchronized swimming. Maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think the next book is Jesse Ramsey, Pet Sitter. So maybe that has to be less about her blackness. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So speaking about that inclusion thing, though, right? So this is a book for children, right? Most people that were reading it were like 8 to 10. And I think it probably did more good than harm in terms of like thinking about inclusion, but there's definitely a lot of equating of different types of oppression in this book. And I'm really curious about your thoughts about this, Emily, and your thoughts, Jeff, because there's one section where Christy's talking to Becca about it. Becca is Jesse's younger sister and basically equates being black, being deaf, being not rich when she moves to her stepdad's mansion mansion being japanese american being diabetic those are like the five different like special categories and she's just like everyone feels left out sometimes and i i just wanted to hear like any any thoughts about that because i was like "Mm." yeah um so i had a lot of thoughts on that and that that was like one of the things that i thought was a central like important sociopolitical theme in this book and that I don't um I don't think was treated well um so one of the things I was thinking about too was this there's like a long history of feminist debate over whether or not like the like slavery is an appropriate metaphor for women's subjection um then this is like before the eradication of the end of slavery and before um, you know, the women's movement as we think of it in like the 20th century, that you had kind of white women who were suffragists sort of learning about their own oppression f- because of their participation in abolitionist movements. And so then suddenly, like slavery becomes this available analogy for women to understand the ways in which they're um, they're being oppressed in in their marriages in in the law, right? That like they're in the, in the laws of the eyes in in the eyes of the law, women are legally dead is one of the famous kind of claims from the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments in 1848. And then there's a lot of debate following these initial kinds of al- allegories, right? Um, around whether that's appropriate and to what extent, and like then a lot of critical discourse around the erasure of Black women that happens when you equate these two systems of oppression. And so I think that that on the one hand, this book doesn't take seriously the ways in which some oppressions are both not only different on the individual level, but that they bring us to different sort of like diagnostic places with like where do they come from and like how society facilitates them and therefore like how to address them so they have kind of different diagnostic and prescriptive dimensions to them but I do think the existence of the kind of conversation around deafness and the conversation around race in the book is really interesting because there are some ways in which like disability theorists for example might um there's uh, 
a lot of kind of discourse around the around the idea of the world being built, the built world. And so it's not that people who are differently abled like are excluded from the world because they're differently abled. It's that the world has been built for the abled. And so and and I think that like race is actually kind of and there are interesting similarities to the sort of social dimension of racism and particularly anti-black racism, right? That like the world has been built around and privileging and producing whiteness. And so the relationship of kind of of like anti-black racism to um, differently abled exclusion is in, in, in effect quite similar, right? That there are material similarities that like the world is built to encourage life of one kind and to kind of discourage at best and like actively negate at worst other kinds of lives. And so like, I think in that sense, they're kind of, it's interesting that they're in the same book, but to just, I think they both get flattened by putting them on the same plane as like not being rich or being diabetic. (laughs) (laughs) And especially, and especially because that like, for the conclusion to just be everyone's left out sometimes is like, I think a wild misreading of actually what's going on in all of these cases. Um, And so I think, I think we're learning the wrong lesson about the built world and like which forms of life are valued and which are not and why, and like what, and how, like how we might fix it. And we're getting this weird, like, multicultural kumbaya like we just have to recognize that like we're all left out sometimes and all differences are the like everyone's different (laughs) like (laughs) all differences are the same like what (laughs) um yeah that that was a long winding response but that's where my head was (laughs) in this book It really felt like the most Karen thing <laughs> in that book. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we've talked a lot, Jeff, too, about how Christie's, and I think Jesse brings it up. I think she says mansion, she says millionaire about Christie's new stepdad, but there's like a lot of talk about like how rich Watson is and like weird descriptions of his mansion. And like when Claudia's babysitting in this book, even she's like, it's so scary to babysit in a big house. The kids are always out of earshot. It's so freaky. But like, in the in the book where Christy felt left out because she's not rich, she's like, sure, she's not rich and she wears jeans and turtlenecks and her dog was not a purebred, but like she's living in a mansion in a rich neighborhood. Yeah. Like okay. <laughs> yeah. fine. Christy's fine. <laughs> so so to step in as the developmental psychology apologist, I totally agree in this in this context, all of that is true. But I think what what the role of a good YA book is, is to communicate that emotions make sense in their context, right? And so I don't like the equating in book 16 at all. I'm on board with you guys. And Christy does feel super left out, right? And the, like that emotion is legitimate and that story is legitimate as a story. Um, it shouldn't be the only story and it's not the same as Jesse's story. So just to like say where we are, but I do agree with the overall thesis of like, she's okay. <laughs> she and what do you, what do you think about all these? Is, is your oppression the same as Jeff's oppression? Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yes, she says. <laughs> Asians and blacks are the same. <laughs> Twinsies. <laughs> So yeah, I kind of want to touch on the subject of pop culture in a different way today. Like usually I I will pull something directly from the book and kind of like go into that and do a deep dive. But since Jeff, you're a television writer and you're a playwright and you are putting out stories into culture to represent your point of view, I'm like curious about um, your experiences in the writer's room. And, you know, in general, I know there, there has been a lack of diversity and equal representation in writers and the entertainment industry in general. And, you know, that's obviously starting to change now, but have you witnessed in the writer's room, like people trying to write a black character or like white men trying to write these characters and you're just kind of like, uh, this is, this is wrong. And like, how do you insert yourself in that? And how does that kind of work? Um, it's, (laughs) How long do you have? Um, um, every I've actually been fortunate enough to <laughs> fortunate. I'm not sure. Okay, 
luckily enough to have been in many, a couple different rooms, two, one ran by a black woman, one ran by a black man, and then rooms ran by a white woman and a white man. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Um, but uh, it honestly depends on like, the, there's like such deep hierarchies in a writer's room. And um, sometimes, like for instance, I was writing on a show where they featured a black gay character and any time that, and I use character very loosely, like he, his whole identity was that he was black and gay. Like that's all he ever said. Um, <laughs> and um, there was a, a time, anytime he came up, he, everyone, eyes and you could feel even like and this is like a, a lot of people are like in their mid-30s in this room you could some people you could even feel them trying not to do it their eyes would just travel towards me <laughs> and then once i had someone um it was actually a, it was a straight black guy turned to me and be like well jeff you know some black gay men are hated themselves and want to kill them. like and i was just like wait what why are you looking at me i was not that <laughs> and so they make very clear stereotypes and ideas and they want you to just kind of confirm their beliefs um so sometimes i push back like that time i didn't look like at him and so he wasn't talking to me and i just kept looking out the window uh, <laughs> sometimes you'll read a script or you'll read a, a scene if you have to co-write sometimes sometimes you have to co-write and you'd be like, I mean, not that I know what a woman sounds like, but like sometimes I'll be like, oh, that's not what a woman sounds like. We should probably like <laughs> talk to a woman. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, so it just gets a little tricky. And I know that I think it always has to do with the top. I think usually when I when I had that room with the black woman, it was very we talked about things very openly. It was very much everything's on the table. When I was in a room with a white woman, it was very much you can feel like she didn't really want to deal with race and you know, and she was older and had, I think, a thing of, like, grew up in that 90s TV where, like, it's kind of like Jesse. Like, if you write a Black character, they kind of just have to be perfect and they just say that, like, life is hard because they're Black, but with no actual, like, nuance. Um, so I think we just need a lot more executives and people at the top who are people of color and to really, I think truly tell stories. And I do agree. I, what I really do like about the story, a part of it was like, it wasn't just that she was black. Um, and her struggle wasn't just that she was black. So the Jesse gets her own paragraph to say her family is black. A trope is still alive <laughs> and well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so Anna Martin is, you know, a white woman. Um, she is a lesbian. Um, but, you know, like, do you think like there's kind of this, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jeff just did a little. <laughs> she did not come out until after these books, though. But I don't know that she was. I think just nobody asked her. I don't know that she ah. was like actively closeted. Like she, mm-hmm. I think it just was not like yeah. widely public. She wasn't like publicly gay. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I don't think she was publicly. Yeah. She's a private either. person. Do you know what ah. I mean? She was yeah, an yeah. introverted writer person. Okay. Anyway, right. I had to just call it. I just had to call attention to Jeff's yeah. little dance. Um, as, as you know, Claudia is Japanese American. I am Japanese American. There are points in the book where I'm like, this is, this makes no sense. Like there's a quote book. Was it where like Claudia didn't know what soy sauce was? It was, it was two like, books ago. Yeah. Two books ago. I was like, this is no. Anne was so upset. <laughs> and then they had Mallory explaining to Claudia what soy sauce was. <laughs> It was anyway. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's like when Ryan Gosling uh, teaches jazz to John Legend. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it was the 80s, and I think that Anna Martin really tried her best to do, you know, represent a lot of different kinds of people. But now, do you think it's, do you think it's possible for, a white person or a non-black person or, you know, a white person to write about an Asian character? Like, do you think that only I could write about an Asian person? Do you think that, you know, only you could accurately depict a black person? Because, you know, there's a lot of things now coming up where movies are coming out and it's like about something. And it's like, well, the director and the writers are not that. So how could they ever understand this? Yeah, I, I think that's always, I mean, it's always a complicated question and thing to answer. I, for me, when I write, one of the things I always just think about is like, hey, what is this person's actual backstory? I mean, some of the nuances like of 
you know, cultural nuances. You can research, you can talk to people, you can, you know, have a friend read something. Um, is this, you know, I, I tend to write a lot of, a, a, a lot of, you know, black women in my, in my thing, in my shows. And if there's anything I'm kind of like, I have a friend Chaz wants to book something over for me. So that is this, mm-hmm. like, I'm talking about things in a way that I'm, I don't experience. Um, but for me, it's like, am I, what is this person's backstory? And ultimately, like, are you telling like a true human anxiety? Like what mm-hmm. is the human anxiety of each character? What is this person actually after? And if you just go back to kind of like mm-hmm. base survival psychology kind of things, you can write a fully dimensional character. I think we get in trouble when we are like, well, they're black. And so therefore they must act X, Y, Z or whatever. I think that's when we kind of fall into these kind of, or people can fall into tropes. Um, and you know, white people explaining stuff to people's people's own culture to them. Anyways, um, I'm just not rambling. <laughs> yeah, I think that's for me. It's really interesting hearing your perspective because I have a lot of I have a few TV writer friends who are white men, and they talk to me about their work sometimes. And then I see their shows, and then I'm kind of like, "Huh, like you you wrote that? Like, or you know, it's just interesting. It's and it's kind of like they seem they like to talk like they know a lot about stuff because, you know, writers are kind of like they're in their head and they think they know everything. <laughs> like you do a lot of research and all this stuff. Um, but yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting because when you think about the people who are telling these stories, I just think you can't substitute any amount of research for personal experience. So, and I think that is what makes like good, good movies or good television, right? It's like, you can kind of tell that it comes from a genuine place. Yeah. That's the, the black feminist epistemology line too, right? That the knowledge is, lots of knowledge is situated. <laughs> I love that Emily says, right. As if we're all like totally up on black feminist epistemology. She's like, right. right? Yeah. We're all there. <laughs> Well, okay. <laughs> I'll just go. <laughs> so besides these thoughtful answers from Jeff that I just got, a couple other pop culture things I just wanted to point out were that uh, Matt and Haley's mom wears Reeboks. <laughs> <laughs> Great pivot from racial diversity in the writer's room. <laughs> Yeah, feminist epistemology, black feminist epistemology. <laughs> to Reebok. But she was, she wore it with a chunky sweater. Yes. Mm-hmm. I also need a pair of Reeboks. <laughs> so do you think they were the Reeboks that, that we had on the like monochrome with the three layers of puff at the top? Do you know what I'm talking about? The high top? Yeah, Reeboks? I think she was. Like, I think you had purple ones. I had, I pink, had ones. pink ones. Oh, you had hot pink. I had purple. Yeah, pink. they were like they had two Velcro straps at the top, mm-hmm. but I think that she was wearing more the um, I forget what I think they're called the freestyle. I actually looked them up, but they are like the '80s mom Reebok shoe. They're just like all white. They're low tops. They just like very practical. Kind of look like orthopedic a little bit. Oh man. Yeah, I think those are coming back in style. Like the Nike Air Maxes are kind of in that spirit. Yeah, totally. Um, Of which Jeff and I and Matt all own pairs. Okay, the ones the ones we had were also called the freestyle. It was just the freestyle high top. Another '80s style thing I wanted to point out was that Haley, I think, has a mullet. She's got rat tail. No. (laughs) Let me try to. No one should have that. Did you miss that, Jeff? Yeah. Let me see if I can. It's in the, the first babysitting chapter. Yeah. I, I had to read. I d- had to do a double take on that. I was like, "What?" And then I immediately forgot about it. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's on page thirty-three. Okay. The door was answered by a pixie of a girl who must have been Haley, but who looked small for nine. Her blonde hair was cut short with a little tail in the back, very in, and her brown eyes were framed by luscious dark lashes. Okay, so what? Oh. How long do we think this tail is? I don't know. Is it like I don't want to know. You know what I'm thinking of as me is is Ryan Harrell. Ryan Ryan Harrell. 
Is that a person you know from school? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it was it was it was very it was in. very in. But you know who like Ansel Angela Borsich had one for a while and Lindsay Del Real. I think this is the second Lindsay Del Real mentioned on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hey Lindsay, if we're listening, um, hope you're doing well. Yeah, you were really fashion forward, my friend. Um <laughs> Yeah, it was good then. It was, it was yeah. good. I get I get your reactions now, but in eighty, it was it was pretty trendy. And then in terms of Claudia's junk food tally, there were things Jesse mentioned that were kind of like part of her stash: ho ho's, yodels, pretzels, candy, and gum. But the only things she really talked about eating were ring dings and double stuffed Oreos. Double stuffed Oreos are a new addition, and so I feel like. People either love him or don't love him. <laughs> so, uh, you love I him? I love them. <laughs> yeah. Aaron and I were huge Double Stuff Oreos fans. We used to get, we, we used to get, put them in a cup, like two of them or three of them, and then pour milk so that it just covered all the cookies and then let it get super soggy and then eat the whole thing with a spoon. I did the same thing. Did you? I would do it for Monday night uh, WWE. I don't know why we watched wrestling. Oh my night. god, that's incredible! <laughs> do that exact thing. So funny. So am I the only anti-double stuff on the on the podcast? I'm not. I'm not really into it either. I, I wow. Maybe it's a generational difference. <laughs> Millennials, yeah. Millennials like Gen Xers don't like the double stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing we can yeah. complain about about millennials. And, um, <laughs> I did a no, quick incredible. Google search of if it really is double stuffed from the regular Oreo, and it is 1.86 times the amount of filling in the double. It's not, it's actually, not actually double. double? Sorry, guys. Wow. It's really disappointing. <laughs> my I'm picturing Jeff watching WWE eating double Sephoras right now, and it's bringing me a lot of joy. The only the only sport I've seen Jeff watch in our adult life as friends is tennis. <laughs> so, so very different vibe, yeah. <laughs> Now it, you went from double stuff Oreos and WWE to tennis and rosé. <laughs> I've become an adult, really. Uh-huh, yes. Okay, Esme, what do you got for the tallies? Ah, yes, tallies today. Um, Jesse also fairly judgmental. I'm still trying to figure out what Jesse's things are, uh, other than being black. I'll I'll talk about that in a second. We do see the resurgence of um, her describing Christie's style as babyish or actually it was Marianne's previous style was babyish and now is getting now she's caring about it a little bit more so we haven't seen babyish in a few books Christy bossy once no one's sophisticated in this book Marianne is both shy and sensitive um Claudia is exotic um and Dawn likes health food um <laughs> and she, uh she doesn't describe Mallory other than to say that she's a really wonderful friend. And I actually have a moment that we haven't mentioned yet that I really liked in the book too for that. Um, but she does mention twice that she likes to tell jokes and she likes to make people laugh um, and sort of discussed it in the context of making other people feel comfortable. So we can mm-hmm. talk about that as emotional, another form of emotional labor. But I'm wondering if that, you know, joke telling, making people laugh is going to be sort of the the Jesse rejoinder to practical and level-headed for Mallory. Mm. So, um, and then there were a lot of kind of SJW trigger words in this book um, that, that popped up. One was um, one of the roles in Coppelia is the Chinese doll. And so I was a little worried about the white girl that was getting cast in that role and what the makeup was going to look like and what the song sounds oh, like. Oh, I think we know. Dances. It's not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not going to be great. Um, And even like, it's interesting because so Jeff may not know this. I live in Berkeley um, and we saw a. um, I love Berkeley. It's great. (laughs) Um, We saw a high school production of Little Shop of Horrors here in neighboring Albany. And in the song Dadu, you know, he buys Audrey too from an old Chinese man, but they changed it to an old bearded man. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so they didn't have, they didn't do the Chang Dadu and they didn't have the little chopsticks thing playing. It was just like they took the race thing out of it entirely, even in this really insignificant thing. So it's interesting to me to think of like what they would do with the Chinese doll and Coppelia. They also refer to Stacy as a diabetic again, instead of a person with diabetes. Having diabetes, yeah. Yeah. And then um, she says that um, Charlotte and Becca are as close as Siamese twins. Um, so that was a little, that was a little uncomfortable, but yeah, that's, that's what we have for tallies this week. Um, Jeff, I forgot to tell you this in advance, but something we like to do to name our episodes is to discuss which were the weirdest lines, like the weirdest things that were like, would a kid say that? Or like just weird turn of, turns of phrase in general. <laughs> um, I don't so know. Many. There's so many. I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts off the top of your head on that, but I only had one in this book that I uh, thought to write down and mark. And that was when Karen first mentions ghost pate, the, yeah. the, the phrases uh, when Claudia's babysitting and Karen's like, well, I guess I better go, which I also thought was hilarious. Karen's just like, bye, I'm out of here. And Claudia says, where? Um, And she goes, down to the kitchen, up to the ghosts. That was my first favorite line. And then my second favorite line was, uh, Claudia says, down to the kitchen for real food. And Karen says, that's where the ghost pate is. (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, I guess they're rich. So this is just another indicator that, like, Watson's rich. His his six-year-old daughter knows what pate is. But I was just like... Does even a rich six-year-old know that? I don't know. I thought it was funny. Well, this is funny because then what Claudia ends up doing is finding liverwurst in their drawer and putting liverwurst on crackers and telling yeah. Karen to do it, which reminded me of you coming to my house, Anne, and, I, and being weirded out yeah. by people liverwurst. I, I was wondering if you thought I, like when it, I read Ghost Pate, I was like, oh, my God. Esme's liverwurst. Braunschweig. <laughs> I think we even called it ghost pate. Ew. Like when eating it, probably. We probably yeah. did. So funny. What favorite lines did you have, Annie? My, I had ghost pate down. Um, my other one was... Nice. The Polanski sisters. <laughs> it's when they're... It's when Jesse and Charlotte are pretending to be ballerinas. And Charlotte says, we're going to be the famous dancing team, the Polanski sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a real thing or a fake thing? I assumed fake. I'm I'm sorry. I assumed it was fake. Oh, but you just liked it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. So I had two. I had two that hasn't haven't come up yet. One was Jesse describing Mallory answering the phone and saying hello, Babysitters Club at a meeting, and she wrote, she says she sounded good and she knew it. <laughs> <laughs> really funny that's incredible um and then my other favorite line was um when jesse's describing becca's rock collection which is not like fancy minerals it's just cool rocks and one of them that looks like their old principal millikan's nose so i just wrote millikan's nose and how if you ask anybody in oakley new jersey what the rock looks like they'll say millikan's nose but people in stony brook will say i don't know i guess a nose (laughs) absurd absurd (laughs) super absurd um, I'm I'm happy to do Polanski sisters. <laughs> Jeff, which of those uh, weird lines was your favorite? Uh, you read? I'm gonna go with Polanski sisters because I thought it was a real fake. I did too, so I didn't even register it. I was like, oh, something from the '80s. I don't know about. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay, what's what babysitter do we think Jeff is? You guys. Oh. <laughs> Well, there's definitely some Stacy or some Claudia. Like he, I, I mean, our podcast listeners can't see this, but when anybody mentions anything having to do with fashion or clothes, he <laughs> lights up like a Christmas tree. So I feel like <laughs> there's some Stacy and Claudia in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a like a Stacy Jesse combo. I feel like Claudia. So we talked about this a bit before. Claudia is an artist, but she's like a v- very visual artist, and I don't know. I feel like the way Jesse talks about dance as a kind of form of artistic expression seems to me more like how you would think about being an artist than how Claudia does. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I, that did ring true. I mean, Jesse has a lot more, she's young, she has a lot more passion for it still. Um, but I, I, that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting strong, like Stacy Jesse combo. Okay, so, so, our conclusion is going to be that he is indeed Jesse 
but it's not because he's black. That's <laughs> 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 part in part. <laughs> but just like Jesse's story, it's not my whole thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Um, Jeff, we're so glad you were joined us today for our conversation. Um, do you want people to look for you on the internet or to know what you're up to now? <laughs> I mean, good luck finding me. Uh, <laughs> if you want to follow me on Instagram, I don't really post, but it's uh, Jeff A107 because I'm that lame. That lame indeed. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll post next next time when the world opens and there's theater again, we'll, we'll post your upcoming shows and things like that. <laughs> Yeah. Have you been doing have you been doing stuff? Um have you been doing Zoom broadcast theater at this point? No, I'm I'm not. Uh I've mostly just been getting paid to write TV that may never get filmed. <laughs> you had a play come out at that was supposed to be at Humana that streamed early oh, in yeah. quarantine. We watched yeah, a early. production of it. It was really good. I don't know why I was expecting this, but I was expecting like a camera in the back of a theater filming a stage. And it was like very, not that <laughs> many, many cameras. It was beautifully produced. <laughs> I was one of the coolest virtual experiences that's supposed to approximate a real one that I have <laughs> consumed all of quarantine. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a pretty good vote of confidence. Yeah. Okay, Jeff, we also close each episode with a pizza toast, which is something the girls do as they're 13 and can't toast um, oh. libations. And usually we pizza toast to something from the book, whether uh, earnest or cynical or <laughs> funny or dark. Yeah. Any any thoughts on what you'd want a pizza toast to in Jesse's secret language? I want a pizza toast to that moment at the end where we meet Keisha and the best friend moment and I just love that moment. Oh my Mal's god! Great best friend. Mal is a great best friend. This is the thing that we hadn't gotten to talk about yet. Uh, here we I go. Wanted to talk about Jeff. At this, this Are you crying? <laughs> I could. I could. <laughs> so, so Keisha surprises Jesse. Right. She. This is her cousin, who's the exact same age as her. They have a, the same birthday. They've been best friends since they were born. Um, and she lives in Oakley. And so she comes up with the grandparents to see Jesse's show. Um, do you have the book with you, Jeff, or no? Yeah. It's okay if you don't. I was just going to have you read some of it if you did. Um, and then Jesse's introducing Keisha and Mal, and she feels super awkward and she like trails off because she doesn't want to say, Here's my new best friend. And she's like, doesn't know what to do. And then uh, probably, Anne, you should read this because I really might start to cry. It's at the bottom of page 140. <laughs> So the, the line that interests it is, Mal saved the day. I've heard a lot about you, Keisha. Jesse and I have tons of things in common, but not the same birthday. That's really special. I wish I had a cousin my age who was my best friend. That did it. Keisha beamed. So good. It's so, so good. good. <laughs> Jeff, what should we call it? To having two best friends? I'm not <laughs> Perfect. Yes, that's great. great. Okay. Pizza toast to having two best friends. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, great. Two, two best, best friends. friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeff. We had a great time. Thanks for having me. This is amazing. I'm now going to read all the books. <laughs> you better. We'll bring you on for something else. We c You can come on for a Stacey book next time to really test oh <laughs> your yeah. character development. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuckinstonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.